In today's world, sin has become something that few give a second thought about. But have you ever considered the wide-reaching effects that it can have and the influence it can have on your continued obedience to God? Welcome to A Walk in the Word, where we bring you the Sunday sermons from Providence Baptist Church Gaston's worship services. In this week's sermon, Pastor John Friedrich uses a shocking story from King David's time to understand the expansive results that it can lead to. Let's join in as Pastor Friedrich preaches a message entitled, Touchy Touchy, from 2 Samuel, Chapter 6. Well, it's good to be in the Lord's house with everybody this morning as we gather around his word and see what he has to say to us. So, uh, as I said, we're going to be in 2 Samuel 6, uh, reading verses 1 through 10. So if you would follow along with me. It says, Again, David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Baal of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelt between the cherubims. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab <coughs> that was in Gibeah and Uzzah and Ahiah, the sons of Abinadab drave the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeath, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahia went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of fir wood, even on harps, even on psalteries, even on timbrels, and on cornets, and on cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to, to the ark of God and took hold of it. For the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. And David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah, and he called upon the name of the place Perazuzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How shall the ark of God come to me? So David would not remove the ark of the Lord unto him, unto the city of David. But David carried it aside into the house of Obedidim of the Gittite. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time we've had together. We, uh, Lord, we just are so blessed that we have had the opportunity to come to you and worship and praise and to, to lift your name. Lord, it is truly an honor. And Lord, you are worthy of our praise and worship. And now, Lord, as we enter into your word, we just ask that you help us to prepare our hearts and minds. Help us to be open. Help us to be receptive to the truths that you want us to hear today. And Lord, I know I'm not worthy to be the one to stand here to present your word, but I ask that you just use me as you see fit. Take away anything that can in any way interfere with the message, pride, selfishness, distraction, whatever it might be, Lord. Just empty me of all those things that you might fill me with your spirit and that the words that I speak might be of your doing and nothing of my own. And Lord, as a church, as we continue to make decisions, as we move forward, help us to see your will in all of it, Lord. Help us to see the path that you have for us, that we might always be acting in, in accordance with your purposes, uh, with your desires for us as a church, that we might serve you in the full capacity that you have intended for us to. 
And Lord, as individuals, help us to see opportunities to share the gospel with those around us in our schools, in our workplaces, in our uh, communities, wherever we might be, Lord. Help us to have the boldness to stand up, to speak your truth, even in the times where there's risk involved for us. And Lord, help us to continue to look for your will in our lives as individuals as well. And forgive us of our sins. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we read a passage that, uh, an incident in scripture, sometimes it has us kind of scratching our head. Uh, on the surface it would be simply a case of follow my rules or else. And while there may be a certain amount of truth to that, to understand fully what's going on here, we've got to take a much deeper dive and examine in order to realize the complexity of what's going on. Now, while there is certainly something to be said regarding not questioning the rules of God, and I've talked about that before, and this is in a large part why we as parents don't say uh, or don't allow our kids to question the decisions we make, because we feel that when we allow them to question the decisions that we make, it puts them in a position where they begin to question all authority and the decisions that all authority over them makes. And before long, before you know it, they're rationalizing in their mind the rules of God and trying to say, well, do I agree with this? Do I feel like the justification for this particular thing that God says is sufficient and whether or not I'm going to obey it? So um, there's certainly a path to go down there, but that's really not where I want to go today. But uh, to truly understand what God's teaching us, we've got to understand what led up to this moment. As with anything in scripture, you've got to understand context, you've got to do some digging, understand what was going on. And in this case is a classic example of a lot of different events that led to a, sp a specific circumstance. So the impetus behind these events are unfolding many, many uh, months before this. And the motivations and mindsets that brought certain events to bear were formulated long before the, this uh, passage that we've read this morning. So what I want to do this morning is I want to take some time. We're going to take some time and we're going to go back for a little bit. Back in scripture where it all began and find out what was it that set all the wheels in motion that led to this day. And take a look at it even before King Saul when all of this started to take place. And it actually began with an act that demonstrated the Israelites' view of the ark and how it changed. Now understand and remember the purpose of the ark. The ark was God's presence. It represented God's covenant with his people. It had been with them for some time up to this point. And now the Israelites were in a situation where they were fighting against the Philistines. They were fighting against the Philistines in their initial part, battle. They got whipped. They got beaten pretty soundly. So in their minds, they begin to think. They begin to think, what do we need to do here? Well, we've got the ark. We've got the ark, so let's drag the ark out with us and use it to help us win this battle. Now what's wrong with that thinking? What's wrong with them thinking, well if I bring the ark along with me, is that not going to help us win this battle? But they were at a bit of a crossroads at this point. 
Because in reality, what they really should have been doing is falling on their faces before God, understanding, God, why is it that you have not allowed us victory in this battle? Are we not following your will? Are we not following your path? Is there some sin uh, in our camp that perhaps is inhibiting our ability to follow your will like it was with Achan? And really seeking out God's will, but instead they just whip the ark out like it's some kind of good luck charm. Let's bring this with us. Surely we'll win. But remember that ark represented an agreement. An agreement for God for, the, for God to be his, their God and for them to be his people. So what we see here suddenly is a shift in reverence. They no longer revere the ark. They no longer have the reverence for the presence of God that they should have had. They assumed that if they dragged God's presence along with them that that would win the battle. You see, they sought not what God wanted, but really they were seeking what they wanted. And they were going to bring God along with them to get it. This is really what they were doing. Sounds kind of like the beginnings of a certain gospel that is prevalent in churches today, doesn't it? Use God to get what you want. Well, as we can see from Scripture, if you'll read back in 2 Samuel, things didn't turn out so good. They dragged the ark into battle, and not only were they soundly defeated, but the Philistines captured the ark. So now the ark is no longer even in their presence. They don't even have it anymore. And it resulted in the death of 30,000 Israelites. 30,000 Israelite soldiers. And Eli, if you'll remember, who was the judge at the time, and who was also Samuel's mentor, had both of his sons killed in that battle. So all of these events, this, is this, this set the stage and this set into motion a series and sequence of events that would lead to our verses this morning. And which brings us to the first takeaway that I want to take or take a look at this morning. And that is that disobedience to God is compounding and its consequences are expansive. Disobedience to God is compounding and its consequences are expansive. I've spoken a lot of times about how when we deviate from the path of God, when we deviate from doing what is right, doing what's wrong gets easier and easier and easier. A classic example of this is when we get out of church. We start skipping church, we skip once, well, the second time's not so, so, so hard. Now, we, the next thing you know, we're skipping all the time. And now we don't have that influence on us, so other things in our life begin to degrade. Our relationship with the Lord, our obedience to his will. And it just kind of goes down a dangerous and descending road at that point. Well, the events that were to follow for the nation Israel are a textbook example of that very concept. So what I'm going to do is really, really quickly, we're going to go through all the events and talk about the things that progressed down through time that led to the event of our passages this morning. The cascade of events is what I'm going to call it after they lost the ark. Now, first we know, the first thing that occurs is we know that word was sent back to Eli of the results of the battle. 
Word gets back to Eli. They said, your sons are dead. They were killed in battle. Now, I'm sure that broke his heart and everything. And then they drop a bomb on him. And they say, oh, and by the way, the ark was captured. Eli, at this point, is so shocked and taken aback by this, he falls over and literally breaks his neck and dies right there on the spot. First event as a result of their disobedience. Interestingly enough, it was the news of the ark that killed him, effectively, not the news of his sons. So, ark goes back to the Philistines. So let's take a look at what's going on over here. Philistines take the ark back to their, their, their areas. They put it in the temple of Dagon. Dagon was their god, so to speak. All right. So they take the ark, they put it in the temple of their god. Next day they come in. Their god is face down on the ground in front of the ark. The statue that they had representing their god was literally in a prostate position before the ark. Well, we can't have that. So they pick him up. They put him back up. Come back the next time. Dagon is once again face down in front of the ark. Only this time his hands and his head are cut off. So now the Philistines are starting to get a little concerned at this point. All right. They understand that something is definitely not right here. And they decide, well, we can't leave it here. So we're going to move it to Gath. We're going to move it to another area in, Philist in the Philistine area. And those people suffered greatly. As soon as that ark arrives in Gath, they suffer a plague of emeralds and massive destruction throughout their area. So the Philistines, you've got to put yourself in the mind of the Philistines at this point. They're probably thinking, okay, maybe we messed up. Maybe we really shouldn't have this ark. <clears throat> so, again, in fear, well, let's move it to Ekron. So they move it up to Ekron. And once again, we see a very similar result. They experience the plague of emeralds. Does anybody, everybody know what emeralds are? It's an unpleasant condition uh, that involves a private area of your body, okay? I'll just, and I'll leave it at that. I'm not going to get into details, okay? So they suffer the same plague. Destruction on top of that, only this time the death of many people as well. So you see the amplification as they are moving the ark from place to place. So the Philistine leaders get together and they say, we've got to do something here. This, is, this, this isn't going to work. So they decide, well, let's get a couple of cows. We'll put this thing on a cart. And if the, cart, if the, if the cows make a direct line to Beth Shemesh in Israel, then we'll know that all of these horrible things that have happened to us were a result of God's hand and not just happenstance. So they get the cows, they hook up the cart, they put the ark on the cart, and the cows go directly on their own. The, Israel, or the Philistines were actually walking behind the cows in the cart at the time. goes directly to a field, the field of Joshua in Beth Shemesh. Israelites see the cart coming, 
see the ark, and they're celebrating. How do they celebrate? Well, those lucky cows. The cows that brought the ark end up being the sacrifice that they celebrated with. They return the ark to Israel, but once again, their separation from God apparently has them forgetting the rules of God. They look into the ark, and as a result, 50,070 Israelites die because they looked into the ark, which they were not supposed to do. So now, because of this, the people of Beth Shemesh had the people of Kiriath-Jerim come and fetch the ark, and it was sent to the house of Abinadab under the care of Eliezer. So, all of this chaos, all of this, this death and this destruction and this suffering began when they decided to use the ark as a good luck charm rather than keeping it and having the reverence for it that it truly deserved. Now, at this point, when it was at Abinadab's house, they did experience a brief period of revival where they were protected from the Philistines. And at this, during this time, Samuel's sons were appointed as judges over Israel. But they didn't quite get the memo on what they were supposed to be doing, so they were corrupt. They abused the office. They took advantage of it. They were evil. And apparently, rather than deal with this circumstance, Samuel chose to ignore it. And now the Israelites decide, we want a king. We don't like the way this judge thing is working. We want a king. Now keep in mind, these are all compounding on each other. The presence of God was not in Jerusalem at this point. The ark that represented the presence of God they had gotten and drifted away from God. So now their mindset is not focused on what God wants. It's focused on what they want. So they say, we want a king. Well, Samuel wasn't too keen on this. Samuel decided, well, I'm going to go to God with this. But God, I know that this is not what you probably want. So he goes to God. And notice the phrase that the people use. They want a God, or they want a king, just like all the other nations. Look at 1 Samuel 8, 5. And said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk... This is the people talking to Samuel. And thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. They're not concerned about what God wants. They want to be like everybody else. Well, they got a king, and they got a king. So let's have a king for us, too. Now, on the surface, this doesn't seem like a really big deal. Kings were a common thing during that time period. But we should note something that God told Samuel when, God, when Samuel went to God about this whole request. He went to God. Samuel did the right thing. He went to God and said, God... The people are wanting a king. I, I'm not real keen on this, but what is your will in this? So he went to God for guidance. And God pointed out, Samuel, don't worry about it. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me by asking for this. Take a look at 1 Samuel 8, 7. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people and all that they say unto thee. 
Listen to this part. For they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. Now there's a key phrase there. That I should not reign over them. God was saying, Samuel, go ahead and go along with this. Because their request for a king is not a rejection of you as a judge, but rather is a rejection of me as their God. They don't want me reigning over them anymore. And this all goes back to how they felt about the ark. Their feelings changed about the ark. It became a good luck charm. Now keep that back in your mind because it's really kind of a manifestation and action from the spirit of what started this whole sequence of events. And we'll get to more of that in a little while here. You see, the people of Israel had lost sight of who their real king was. They wanted a person, God, a person king when in fact God was their king. That was the whole idea of the reminder of the covenant. God was their God. God was a rule over them. But they decided they wanted to be like other nations. Have a king that ruled over them. Not from a heavenly realm, mind you, but from an earthly realm. So they make Saul their king. They go down the path and Saul's their king. And, and he may have done a semi-decent job for a while. Well, not so much. You see, he makes it on... He, at some point, he is waiting on Samuel to make a sacrifice, decides, well, I'm king, I can make the sacrifice because Samuel's not here yet, and he decides to violate God's law himself and makes the sacrifice himself. First mistake. Disobeys God in the battle against the Amalekites. And at this point, he's rejected by God. When I say he disobeys God, God made a clear statement to him in the battle against the Amalekites that destroy everything, take no prisoners, Take those spoils. Just level it. What did he do? Well, they took the spoils and they captured the king and they, they completely disregarded what God did. Or what God said. And at this point, God actually rejects Saul as their king. He's rejected by God at this point. So David at this point is appointed. And this spins up Saul's jealousy where he repeatedly tries to kill David. He kills some priests and then he uh, aided, that had aided David. And he ultimately seeks out guidance of a fortune teller to find out what he's supposed to do instead of seeking out guidance from God. So you see what's going on here? One thing leads to another, leads to another. It's just going down a long path of disobedience. Because if you look, all these things are connected and one typically led or paved the way for the next. And think about how many different people were impacted by all of these different events. The deaths, the, the, the discomfort, the disease, the, uh, just all of it. The plagues. It's the same way with our sin. You and me can cause the same kind of chaos. So often we deceive ourselves into thinking that when we sin, our actions are really only infect, infecting and impacting us. Even when they are known to others. But that's not true. I mean, think about it. Adultery leads to broken marriages and the fallout from the effects of divorce on children. Dishonesty leads to broken trust, the loss of jobs, maybe even jail time. That 
And that impacts family members, loved ones. Sexual immorality impacts the participants. That can also impact society as a whole. I mean, look at the degradation and wide-ranging negative effects of our society that has occurred is from the promotion of acceptance of sin like cohabitation, homosexuality, pornography. It has wide-ranging impacts. And while those that participate in those different sins might say, oh, I'm not, in, I'm, I'm not impacting anybody but me, that is not true. It impacts a whole host of other individuals, particularly if it's, you're supporting an industry that feeds that kind of thing. And the list goes on and on. It simply is not true that our sin has no impact outside our own lives. And understand this is true even if you think your sin is not known. And that's because inevitably it impacts our attitudes. It impacts our thoughts. It influences our actions later. And then impacts other areas of our lives. And when we see this and the results with the nation Israel, it brings us to the next point, And that is that we have got to keep God's holiness in perspective. This is where the initial problem began with the Israelites. Rather than looking at God with reverence, respect, reverential fear, they'd begun to think of God with a sense of entitlement. Hey, we got our God here, so let's bring the ark and we'll get what we want. They'd become entitled thinking about God. That's why instead of the ark being seen with the intent that God had originally intended, they saw it as a good luck charm. It was like a four-leaf clover in their opinion. A way to get what they wanted. A way to use God to accomplish their desires. And for seven decades, seven decades, folks, from the time the Philistines stole, uh, captured the ark to the time David finally decided, well, let's go get the ark and bring it back to Jerusalem. Seven decades had transpired. Seventy years. God was an afterthought. The ark, well, it's down there in Abinadab's house. Well, that's no big deal. At least it's somewhere. No mention during this entire time was made of it. It had all been pretty much but been forgotten. But see, the ark was significant in the spiritual life of the Israelites. Remember what I said about the ark earlier? It represented a covenant between the Lord and Israel. It was God's promise to be their God and their obligation to be their people, his people. So in the ark, God represented himself to, the, to, to Israel. <clears throat> and when they were defeated initially against the Philistines, rather than go to God in prayer falling on their faces and repent with humility, they decided to bring it along like a four-leaf clover. Do you see how this diminishes God's holiness when viewing it in this manner? It's just the ark. It's God. So let's take it and use it for our own purposes. This is diminishing the holiness of God. But this is exactly the same mistake that is being made in churches all across the U.S. or even in the world for that matter where false prophets are presenting the so-called prosperity gospel, twisting God's word to confuse the masses into believing that God is there to serve them. That is completely backwards. God is not there to serve us. We are to live, we exist to serve and glorify God. 
And if he chooses to pour out his blessings along the way, then we humbly thank him. We recognize that we deserve none of it. God is holy and we can't ever lose perspective of that. But how does that translate, though, then into how we should act? Well, 1 Peter is pretty straightforward. 1 Peter 1.16 says, Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. That's one of the more direct and concise verses in all of Scripture. But it directly associates our actions to God's holiness. Our actions should reflect our God. And anything we should do should be done in a way that honors and glorifies Him. And one of the most powerful ways to govern our actions is to always keep God's holiness before us. Always remember who He is. In fact, we're rather, rather than uh, disregarding God's holiness for our own purposes, that's why I've said many times that understanding sin, we've got to fundamentally understand the core of it. We've got to understand that sin, first and foremost, is an affront, an offense to God. But oftentimes we try to rationalize it. We try to reason with it. We say, well, maybe... This isn't such a big deal because I've kind of got good motives behind why I'm doing it. I've got good intentions. It might be a case where we're tempted to try to come up with some explanation that sounds good for why we should do something, or maybe it's a snap decision. But nevertheless, sin is a violation of God's will and God's word. It is a front and offense to Him. No matter what reasoning we might try to use, no matter what rationalization we try to use, no matter how good our intentions might be, if it goes against God's law, it is still sin. And that brings us to the next point. God's directives are not suggestions. They are not suggestions. And the world today would be wise to, to pay attention to that. So then how do we begin to make sense of what transpired? This morning, we, we, think, we see Uzzah put his hand out to stable the ark as it was on a cart as the ox stumbled and he thought it was going to fall. I mean, to us, to you and me, we think of that and think, there's nothing wrong with that. He was trying to, to keep the ark from falling. Well, to understand what happened next, we need to be aware that the Lord had long ago given clear instructions to Moses, even, about the way in which the ark was to be moved. Remember how David was moving the ark? It was on a cart, pulled by oxen, out for everybody to see. His distance, their distance from God, had apparently led them to be very lax in following God's directives. Because God had very, very specific instructions on how the ark was to be transported. Let's take a look. Numbers 4, 5, and 6. And when the camp setteth forward, Aaron shall come and his sons, and they shall take down the covering veil and cover the ark testimony with it, and shall put, forth, put thereon the covering of badger skins, and shall spread over it a cloth wholly of blue, and shall put it in staves thereof. Okay, first thing. Ark was not supposed to be out in the open. It was supposed to be covered. 
So that's the first mistake they made. We also know that it was supposed to be carried by the priests by means of poles that were passed through rings that were on the top corners of it. Deuteronomy 10.8 At that time the Lord separated the tribe of Levi to bear the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to stand before the Lord and to minister unto him and to bless in his name unto this day. Ark transported by priests. Who was transporting the Ark? Oxen. It wasn't carried by priests, it was carried by a couple of oxen. And what's more is, how was it to be carried? Exodus 25, 13 through 15. And thou shalt make staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with gold, and they shalt, thou shalt put the staves into the rings by the sides of the ark, that the ark may be born with them. The staves shall be in the rings of the ark, they shall not be taken from it. This is a very clear instruction. The ark's transport should have been done by Levite priests carrying the ark, with rods of wood running through the rings on the ark. None of this was being done. It was totally ignored. God's directives were totally ignored here. What's more is it was not to be touched, nor was it to be looked into. Numbers 4.15 and Numbers 4.20. We see both of those things occurring. And we see consequences, sometimes very significant consequences as a result of their in total disregard for God's word. However, if we have in mind God's instructions to Moses, the first thing we notice is that no mention is made of the ark being covered. It was in full view of everyone. We know it was on a cart, which is disturbing when you think about it, because if you go back and read how the Philistines, the, those that had no regard for God at all, transported the cart, how do you think it was done? Exactly the same way. David chose to transport the cart, not by God's instructions, but let's do it like the heathen do. Let's do it like the Philistines that don't have any regard for God do. It was from the pagan Philistine priests and diviners process. So basically the entire process outlined by God and how to transport the ark, disregarded. Completely ignored. And then it happens. The ox stumbles. Uzzah sticks his hand out, he touches the ark, he's struck dead. Now would that have happened? You think if they'd have followed God's rules? Would the ox have been able to stumble if an ox wasn't carrying the thing in the first place? Would it have fallen off a cart if it wasn't on a cart to begin with? Would Uzzah have had to steady the ark if it was being transported, being carried in the arms of the Levite priest with rings that don't allow it to move anywhere? No! You see, all of this goes back to the fact that they were disobedient. This comes down to them being disobedient to God. And as a result, these consequences of other things that took place, the cascade of sin carried through. But Uzzah reached out, tries to keep it from falling. And a difficult lesson was learned. The ark was not to be touched inappropriately, or in other words, God's holiness was not to be compromised, even with good intentions. You know, passages like this force us to take seriously 
how strongly God feels about placing our preferences before his revealed will. But wasn't Uzzah trying to do good, you think? Wasn't he trying to do what he thought was the right thing? Well, here's the problem with that thinking. Uzzah's touch represents a failure to understand his own sinfulness. Uzzah saw the ark headed towards the ground, and he reached out because he assumed his hand was dirty or was less dirty than that ground. But dirty from what sense? He's a sinful creature. The ground never did anything. Secondly, if the ark fell, don't you think that that would have been God's doing? That he would have allowed that as a result? Most of us would have done the same thing, though. But the earth has never committed the blasphemy of rejecting God's authority. The earth has always obeyed the commands of God. I mean, think about it. Jesus speaks to the winds and waves. Flat calm. The elements obey God. We are the ones that disobey. The touch of a sinful man pollutes the ark. But we tend to struggle with God's reaction to this and the judgment that he brought on Uzzah. Uzzah died as a result of him trying to do something he felt was a good thing. But we reason, the reason we don't understand the judgment as God is we don't understand the wickedness of our own sinfulness. We look at God's judgment and say, well, well, that's pretty harsh. Well, have you ever considered how harsh our sin comes across to God? We tend to minimize it, tend to play it down. The reaction we have to an event as horrific as a crucifixion is the reaction that we should have towards our sin before God. The cross should remind us that our sin is unspeakably wicked. At its core, sin isn't just transgressing some line in the sand, so to speak, some boundary that God has placed out there. It's us actually saying we delight in doing what's wrong. It's us saying, I know what God said, but man, I want to do this more than I respect God's authority. It's a full rejection of God's authority over us. We despise God for denying our pursuit of pleasures, so we stand in open defiance of him and do things our way. Say, God, I don't care what you think. I don't care what you say. I'm doing it my way. That is what sin is. Think about that. Our sovereign, holy creator of the universe, and we're telling him to his face, I'm doing it my way. Despite his holiness, despite his goodness, despite him being God. But you know what? God knew we'd be like this. It's not like he's surprised. He knew before time eternal that we were going to be a bunch of rebellious, hard-headed individuals. Even to the point of our own demise. He didn't want to leave us there, though. And this is something that just absolutely stuns me. God, in our creation, knew how we were going to act. God, in our creation, knew he would have to provide a means of our salvation or we would all end up in hell. 
God in our creation knew that he would have to send his son if there was any chance for us to be redeemed. He knew that was the only path. And he knew that only he could provide that. He wanted to draw us to himself. He gave us an opportunity to enjoy him forever and ever. And though we may, many think we can work our way to heaven, we can do enough good deeds, maybe outdo the bad deeds, and if we get the scales to tip a certain way, then maybe we can get into heaven. A lot of people think like that. Some people say there are many paths to God. I've heard uh, a famous person one time say, oh, there's a million ways to God. No, there's not. The Bible is clear. There's but one path to God, and it goes through one individual, and that name is Jesus Christ himself. You can't be good enough. Because the whole, one of the biggest problems with that is that your good works don't negate your sin. Your sin has one punishment, and that's spiritual death. So your good works have absolutely no bearing whatsoever on the sin that is an offense to God. God says sin requires somebody to die. And that's where Jesus stepped in for you. That's where Jesus said, I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to take on all the sins of the world. I'm going to suffer the wrath of God so that you, so that you can have a relationship with him. The Bible tells us that if we'll confess our sins before God, admit that you're a sinner. Admit that, hey man, I messed up. I do things wrong. I do things all the time that are an offense to God and there is no excuse for it. And then believe that Jesus went to that cross. He hung there took on the sin, your sin, my sin, everybody's sin, paid the price that God demanded, experienced God's wrath, experienced the full judgment of God, rose again three days later, then you too can be saved. You can experience the glorious relationship that comes from knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And it reminds us that our sin leads to no good thing. But death. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today? Have you experienced the rebirth that comes with acknowledging Jesus as the Lord of your life and recognizing that you need Him as Savior? If not, why not do that today? Let's stand as we go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come before your throne this morning, we are grateful that we've had this time together. Lord, we thank you for your word and the truths that it presents to us. And Lord, let us always feel your presence with us. Lord, help us to understand your holiness. And in doing so, we always keep you before us in the decisions that we make, in the actions that we do, in the words that we speak, in every single facet of our lives. Lord, help us to, to always be in view of you so that we know that we are doing according to your purposes and to your will. Lord, have your will and way with all those that are here today. Speak to their hearts in accordance with your purposes that they might respond according to your will. And Lord, just help us to glorify you. Help us to honor you with everything that we do. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Thank you for joining us today. Tune in next time for another Walk in God's Word. Podcasts are available in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music and Audible, Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, CastBox, Downcast, and Beyond Pod. Search for and subscribe to Providence Baptist Church Space Hyphen Space Gaston Sermons. Until next time, may God bless you as we await his joyful return. Hi, this is John Friedrich, pastor of Providence Baptist Church. It's my prayer that our time together has helped you grow in your walk with God, or maybe he's even used it to guide you to discover the wonderful gift of salvation. If you're ever in our area, we would love for you to come worship with us. Our address is Providence Baptist Church, 977 Metafield Road, Gaston, South Carolina, 29053. If you'd like to contact us, you can do so through our website at www.providencembcgaston.com or email us at providencembcgaston at gmail.com. Again, thank you for tuning in, and we look forward to you joining us next time as we take a walk in the Word.